The opinions expressed in this recording do not necessarily reflect the views of Nelson's Greenbrier Distillery or Constellation Brands, Inc. Hello and welcome to Still Life, a podcast about whiskey, life, and everything in between. I'm your host, Andy Nelson, co-founder and head distiller of Nelson's Greenbrier Distillery in Nashville, Tennessee. The show is dedicated to conversations with exceptional people in and around the distilled spirits industry. Sometimes we get a little technical, sometimes we get a little personal, and sometimes we barely mention whiskey at all. It's all part of an effort to explore the human side of the business and the inner workings of the humans who make it run. Thanks for listening. Hi, Still Lifers. Welcome. Happy Monday to all who celebrate. Today we have Fawn Weaver of Uncle Nearest Whiskey. So Fawn is the founder of Uncle Nearest Whiskey. And it's kind of weird to think of her as the founder because in some ways she's doing just what Charlie and I did with our brand, which is to say kind of resurrecting something. So Uncle Nearest didn't exist 150 years ago, um, but Nearest Green did. And she'll get into the story. I mean, if you haven't heard of Uncle Nearest by now and you're listening to this podcast, I would be surprised. I won't say too much more about this. I've just known Fawn for a long time, for years and years, and really wanted to get her on this podcast. She's quite a fixture, a big fixture in the distilled spirits industry, really. But Fawn also has a lot more to talk about. We got a little personal, talked about her personal life, and that was very interesting. Um, she's got a lot going on, um, Had a has had a very interesting childhood, a lot of, of drama and intrigue and the like, and she's overcome a lot. And so there's a lot to respect about her. Also, her her mindset, her the way that she just approaches every day is, is kind of fascinating. Um, given everything that she's seen and um, and experienced throughout her life. So, big fan of hers, um, and I hope you enjoy. I will leave you to it. This is me and Fawn Weaver. Well, it's cool that you got a, got a driver. That's a, that's a good thing in this business. We keep a full-time driver because there's, cause there's so many of us that do events. Yeah. And it is like that just... You go and you don't really know, like you feel fine and yeah. you probably are fine, but for the purposes of our company, it's right. a liability. So for me, it's, I don't really do events, so it's not needed for me for that, but I go back and forth to the airport so much. Right. We started looking at my, the bills for yeah. me going back and forth to the airport <laughs> yeah. and it Parking was and all. so ridiculous. No, I'd always have a car because when I go the amount of money for the parking, yeah. it's like, well, it just makes sense to, and then I would usually be going at like four in the morning. So then I'm driving at dark in the morning and at night. And so Keith yeah. was like, no, 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 yeah, get yeah. a driver. And so they started booking me and I started looking at those bills. I was like, well, hell, this isn't an annual salary. Yeah. So between me going back and forth to the airport and Victoria is, I swear she's either going back and forth to the airport or she's at an event every day. It's the most unbelievable thing. Yeah. Yeah. God, I know those days. I know those days. Um, well, thank you for coming over. Yeah, of course. Um, so to start out, we are having a dram here. We are. Um, we're, this is barrel seagrass. 
and I'm excited to try it. If I don't love it, I'm switching to your uh, bell meat. <laughs> Deal. I've got plenty of that in the house. So this is, yeah, rye whiskey finished in Martinique rum, Madeira, and apricot brandy barrels. This is 119 proof. So cheers. Cheers. I love a high proof. So let's check this out. The apricot brandy is, mm-hmm. that's the nose. That's tasty. Yeah. That's got some kick. Yeah. But that's tasty. It's pretty crazy. I like that. Yeah. 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 I've never met. Beautiful blend. Yeah. I've never met anybody from, uh, from barrel, but I know, you know, all about them because they're, they're kind of everywhere now and it's like, they're, they're just really good at what they do. Yeah. That's beautiful. Yeah. So, um, I guess first of all, just introduce yourself to everybody. I'm Fawn Weaver, super happy wife of 20 years, and I moved from Los Angeles, really old Agora. It's not really Los Angeles, but (laughs) everyone who lives within an hour in traffic of the city of Los Angeles, we all say we're from Los Angeles, but you know. So you said old Agora. Old Agora. It is. Is that Ventura County? Almost, almost. How'd you know that? Because I was born in Thousand Oaks. Get out of here. Well, it's right next to Thousand Oaks. Yeah. So Thousand Oaks would be, I think, the first city in Ventura County Okay. because Old Agora is the last city in Los Angeles County. Okay. okay. So we went as far away from LA as we possibly could yeah. to remain in like LA County. But our, it's the, we're, I don't know if you remember, we're Old Agora High School was. I don't, I don't remember much of anything outside of like. Uh, basically directly outside of our, cause I, I, we moved here when I was like six. Okay. Okay. Did, so, have you ever been back? Yeah. When I was looking at colleges out in California, my dad and I went back and like knocked on the door to the old house and oh. the, uh, drummer for the band Ambrosia lived there at least at that time. No way. <laughs> so Deep we're cut, old, old Agora is basically somehow, some way I always wanted to move to the South and Keith, my husband is he's LA through and through at Sony picture studios forever. So he had no desire to leave out of LA. And so he found me a community that was within LA County that literally felt like it was someplace in the middle of Texas. They, everything about it didn't, you would have no clue you were near LA. You have chickens crossing the road and my neighbors had cows. I had one neighbor with about 30 horses and neighbors with donkeys and mules and roosters and all the rest of that stuff. So I loved that. And, but it was interesting because it was like this little bitty tiny pocket in between Malibu and the Kardashians, because the Kardashians began <laughs> buying everything around us, right? Yeah. And so we've got this little small world that seems as though time stopped yeah. back in the, the 70s or something like that. But then we oh, would leave great. out and then you bump into like Jada or Will, or you bump into one of the Kardashians or Justin Timberlake or Drake. And yeah. so, it was, you know, <laughs> it was interesting. We had our whole little world, but if we went 15 minutes outside of our world, it was Britney Spears. It was pretty wild. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So I didn't know that. I knew that Keith had worked, was a Sony guy, but I didn't know if it was music Sony or, or movie Sony or what. So pictures and he was the, until now, I mean, we're only two weeks 
removed from it, he spent 21 years there and he was the executive vice president overseeing global public policy and external affairs. So that basically means any place in the world where they were filming, there's always some type of, of government regulation, government stuff that has to happen. So say, for instance, they're trying to fly a plane over restricted airspace or they're trying to do something in a, in a national park that you otherwise would not be able to do. Or if you're trying to shut down a freeway or blow up a building, he has to be the one to make all of that stuff yeah. happen. And, and so, or if someone travels outside of the country, an actor, which this literally happened, an actor travels outside of the country and you know, you have to have a certain amount of passport pages in order to come back into the U S what? Oh Yeah. But you you mean just like open pages for the stamps? Yes. Yeah. But you, I didn't it, know you it's had not to have like a, just one. You have to have a certain amount of open pages. Really? I in order to get back. It's the weirdest rule. Yeah. But you do. And and so they'll have actors that'll travel. And then if they go out, for instance, and they go out private and they don't think anything of it, and then they're coming back on commercial, yeah. then they can't get through. So then Keith would be the one to get the call because the, the celebrities, of course, is, is too big to go to the embassy himself or yeah. herself. I won't you know, call out a gender on this, but yeah. those are the kind of phone calls he would get in the middle of the night, like so-and-so can't get back into the U.S. And yeah. so then he'd have to work it out. And, and so, but it was, a, it, there was never a dull moment. We went to a dinner one time and everyone at the dinner was late. It was like a black tie dinner. It was a big deal. Everyone was late and everyone is complaining that they were late because the 105 freeway got shut down, which that's, it's right next to LAX, mm -hmm. a disaster for it to get shut down. And so I start nodding toward Keith and Keith is like, stop it. And they're like, you shut down the 105. <laughs> it was when Will Smith was doing that movie where he's like some kind of action hero, something like that. Yeah. And I was like, yeah, y'all oh, are all late because this Smith dude. Action yeah. Hero movie. Yeah. Yeah, it was this dude is the one who shut down the 105 on you. Sorry. Yeah, yeah, so, but yeah. yeah, so that was his job until till 2 weeks ago, but the the cool thing is is during COVID, I always look for what is the beautiful diamond in the middle of everything. And during COVID, he was prior to COVID, he was traveling back and forth to the studio every he'd leave here on Monday mornings at like four in the morning, he'd leave the house and then he would take that flight. And then he would take the red eye out on Friday night out of LA to come back. So he was always tired when yeah. we were together during COVID. He didn't have to leave. Yeah. And so he set up his office at the distillery and every day he, he can't be in the house. I, I love being in a home office. He can't do it. He has to leave. Otherwise he gets distracted. So as the office at the distillery, and so on the other side of COVID, when Sony started having everyone come back into the office, he said, I'm not, I'm not coming back. So my contract is almost up. I'm just, I'm not going to do it. So let's just move on. And they said, well, is that your, the only reason is you don't want to come back? And he said, oh, well, that's fine. Your whole team's here. You can just be wherever you want. So the, his last contract with Sony Pictures, the address for where he, his office was, was the distillery. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, the address for our distillery for years was my parents' house. No way. You know? I mean, before we, obviously before we had an actual still and all that, just for the business address. So Get out of here. Yeah. I mean, it was, it was our dad helping us out and we didn't, you know. He owned a house and we didn't. So I remember that. I remember that because I think, did he do a mortgage for? Well, he, the, the house was the primary piece of collateral for our right. loan when we got first, 
got right. started. So yeah. we had, we were quite literally all in as, as, uh, as deep as you can get for like making sure this thing worked. I love your brand story. Your the distillery story. I always have. I tell people it all the time, at least as much as I know about it. Right. I've always loved it. And I think because I first met you, Charlie and your dad together is like, Oh, this is cool. Like to go back and to resurrect your own family's history. That's, most aren't able to do that. Well, this is this is a good segue here because obviously, while you haven't actually said it on mic, and I'll do it in the intro, but yeah. you are what founder? Do you call your hey Clyde? That's my dog Clyde. He's hanging with us. It. He's the most beautiful golden retriever. No, don't have to tell me twice. <laughs> um, but you are the you call yourself the founder, founder CEO of Uncle, Uncle Nearest. Nearest. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. So. I find it so interesting. I'm really glad to have you here because I feel like we have this, um, in some ways, I don't know if a kindred kind of thing is, is the right way to put it, but it's, it is, while it is, yes, it's my family story. It's in some, so many ways to you, you know, I having known you for a little bit, you know, we met years and years ago and then I've seen you kind of grow and grow and do all this and, and everything I've seen in the public of you and just knowing you at least a little bit, it, it feels like it's your family business too. Yeah. Yeah. And I think a part of that is, is that I have the near screens family involved. I, we were actually just, I was talking about it with my editor this morning cause I literally just finished the book this morning, right before I got here. Uh, we, we finally put it to bed, the final edits and all the rest of that the stuff. Book? I didn't know about that. Oh God. Well that, this started off was me coming down and doing research for a book and a movie. Oh, that's that, right. Yeah. Yeah. But the, the whiskey just overtook it. Yeah. And so now it's six years in the making is this book be, just because of time and space. And, and I'm happy I didn't write it before or finish it before now, because the history is so rich and it gave me the ability to bring in a lot of different historians to literally go back and re-interview a lot of the folks that I interviewed and, and dig in even deeper to my research and see, could they find more? And they did, which was pretty astonishing. So no, I'm, I'm super happy about it. Yeah. I mean, we've had, it's a, this is yet another connection here. I found it so interesting. We've had like you know, long lost cousins kind of, or not even long lost. It's just we cousins we never knew yeah. and family we never knew, like yeah. from Chicago, from Kansas, from South Carolina, reach out yeah. once they learned about the story of the distillery of through course. the whiskey, because they knew that they were somehow related to Charles Nelson back in the day, but it would have been through, you know, maybe Charles Nelson's daughter. So the names had changed, yeah. you know, over time and the generations. And so, yeah, it's funny. Uh, I'm just glad that no one has yet said like, well, I owe, you know, you owe me 15% of the business or whatever. Yeah. Well, you know, the, the, it's so interesting with, with the, the green family, because one of the very first things that I did was put together the family tree to, and begin identifying who is who, who is, and, and there are five separate branches, but most of the branches didn't know one another. So when I brought all of the family branches together for the first time, they were skeptical of one another because they all knew they were related to nearest green. Yeah. But they didn't know each other. And so it's like, what do you mean we have a whole branch that lives in Indianapolis? And what do you mean there's a whole branch that lives in St. Louis? And where did these people come from? Right. 
And, and so, but it was the most beautiful thing because at first they were all skeptical and talking to me when I said, you all should meet each other. And, but then when I was doing my research, there was this one particular person, Charles Green, he went off to, he was a service member and he was in the army and he sent back photos and postcards from wherever he went all around the the world to his family. So the way that I was able to initially prove to everyone that they were related is everyone had his photos. Huh. And so when I, when and he was from what generation, like he, what he was, he in was, the service? He, yeah, he was nearest his, he would have been nearest his great grandson. Okay. So Charles, so when he would post at a, at service somewhere around in the Germany world, and wherever in, he was, was this like during a wartime era or more closer to modern day? It's more closer to modern. Well, no, I guess it would have been around world war two that okay. he would have been, he would have been out there. Yeah. Yeah. And and but what he would do, and this was pretty common, is is they would give the service members this ability to t- have photos of themselves and turn them into postcards. Yeah. So everyone got these postcards with his face on them, and he he lived here in Nashville, and so he's sending not just the postcards back to his family here in Nashville, but he's sending family the postcards to family in Indianapolis and St. Louis. And so when all of the elders, they all allowed me to f- make photos of all the copies of their photo albums, whatever was the family Bible, family photo, anything, uh, they gave me everything that they had that would help to piece this story together. How do you, how did you approach them to just get them to trust you to do that? You know what? It was interesting because they've always known uh, a piece of the story but no one ever knew the whole story and they had been trying to, or if it was true, or if it were, they no, they knew it was true. Yeah. That part they knew because there, there was a, a particular woman by the name of Mammy Green who was born in, uh, Mammy was born in 1901 and she made sure that all of her grandkids knew that her granddad made the whiskey. And then anyone who was born before that, when George Green was alive, everybody knew the story of nearest green didn't disappear till 1978. So everybody who was 10 years and above in 1978, they all knew the story to be true because the story was told at Jack Daniel distillery. So they would all bring like their college friends on a tour so that they could hear the story of nearest green. So, so I want to get back to this, but I want to first ask you, so do you have like, I mean, the kind of preamble to this is to bring it back to me for a moment. Yeah, um, I love it. I love it. <laughs> so, I, you know, we've always been very proud of the way that people respond to the history of our company and distillery and family and all that. And it was our, you know, triple great grandfather and our rediscovery of it and, and all of this. Um, and, you know, we've worked our asses off to, to yeah, yeah. resurrect the whole thing, yeah. the business and, and everything. Sacrificed and it's, a lot. Yeah. And, and it's always been very clear that the story is, it just fundamentally is the cornerstone of our, of the business and any success that we have. It's built on that story Yeah, and the fact that it's true. And so in the case of uncle nearest, the story obviously plays the same kind of foundational role in to the business as well as this, um, much kind of deeper, uh, like sort of more tragic dimension of American history as a whole, you know, um, fundamentally a human story that was not 
just forgotten, but in some ways they just totally erased. Yeah. And so anyway, with that, I'm, I'm curious, do you, first of all, have kind of a shorthand, I imagine the answer is yes, but, yeah. uh, shorthand version of the story for anyone listening who may not know it. Yeah. Well, you know, the shorthand version, super simple is, uh, you have a, a young kid named Jack Daniel, who is the, who's born the 10th child and his mother dies of typhus fever when he's four months old. And it's not like they had time to prepare for her to be gone. She contracted it and seven days later she was dead. So you have a man now trying to raise 10 kids at that time. Mm -hmm. Men were not exactly the fathers they are today. The way that they raised kids was the woman raised the kids. Yeah. And if the woman died, they married another woman. <laughs> yeah. That's, yeah. That's literally what happened. Yeah. And, and that's what happened with, with Jack's family and, and the new mother. I'm sorry. That is, that is so true. That's crazy. I had never really oh. taken a moment to think about that notion that it's when you look back in the history books or I've mentioned this show a million times, but the show finding your roots, I'm yeah, obsessed yeah, yeah. with it yeah, yeah. and just hearing all these stories about like, you know, the mother died. And so he went and found another wife. Like it was some disposable thing because it and was, like, that's so, it is crazy uh, to me. It hadn't really hit me until just now. How, <laughs> what a wild world but, that is. But it that's just, what it was. Yeah. The men had no idea. And so you have, I mean, Jack was, was, uh, wet nursed by his next door neighbor, Mrs. Wagoner. And so you have this, this, these aren't things that we really think about the fact that, okay, there's not formula. So if a mother dies, what happens? Yeah. You find a woman in the neighborhood who's breastfeeding another child. And that person then begins breastfeeding your child. Mm -hmm. So you have, this is how Jack grows up. And, and the person who was father married wasn't a fan of, of Jack's. And so you see him or you find him somewhere around seven years old, beginning to to work as a chore boy in Lynchburg at a local farm for a preacher and distiller by the name of Dan Call. Well, the, the master distiller on his, on his grounds was near screen. And so the, the fast forward version of this story is, is that nearest taught Jack how to make Tennessee whiskey. And then he became his, his mentor, but then he became his first master distiller. So most people don't know, which they will definitely discover uh, as, as this continues to go on. But most people don't know that distillery number seven actually existed. Distillery number seven was changed to distillery number 16 by the time anyone really, really of the current generation of those who run and own Jack Daniel, they only knew it as far back as distillery number 16. So they had all these reasons why that, that it could have been called old number seven. And it's, you know, there's seven girlfriends, which that was just a bunch of hogwash because Jack, he was so in love with this. I have these letters from him that were to this one woman who he just kept writing and he was absolutely puppy love and she was not returning mm -hmm. his love. And, but he, he was not a person who would, was sleeping around with multiple women, not even by a long shot. So I could, I knew that that story wasn't true. And then it was yeah. something about seven barrels going to St. Louis and seven, this and seven, that, and no one ever dug to say, was there ever a distillery number seven? Well, I've been, that's something I've been very curious about myself because we, so we are, uh, old, distillery number five back in the day, mm -hmm. registered distillery five. And that, you know, we, when we resurrected our, our DSP, the modern day distilled spirits plant, 
we asked for the historic designation of DSPTN5, mm-hmm. and, and we got it. And so that, of course, everybody is like, oh, isn't, isn't uh, Jack Daniels number seven or whatever? And we've never really known th- how to quite respond to that. All is like, I just know that we're number five and here's, you know, and we have this document in, uh, in our tour path and it's a, uh, page from, I can't remember what year, some in the 1880s, uh, some year in the eighties, 1880s. Uh, and it's a, um, it, why am I losing my words here? So it's a internal, re- it's basically an IRS tax document for the state of Tennessee showing all the registered distilleries within the state, which of course back then was like hundreds, if not thousands. Yeah, right? yeah, yeah. And it showed on this one page, it's, it showed, you know, Chaz Nelson and it showed like the RD, which is registered distillery number, uh, you know, the county it was in the district within the state, uh, et cetera. And it said Chaz Nelson. And I guess it was maybe in the 1890s. In fact, anyway, Louise's name was also on it. And it said RD five, you know, Greenbrier, Robertson County, blah, blah, blah. And then a few lines down, uh, probably 10, 12 lines down, it had Jack Daniel distillery Lynchburg, um, RD 514. Yeah. And so that's all that we've ever known or been able to like, I'm like, I don't know, but we have this thing. And so I'm curious if you have like an understanding of that or like, I do, I do. So the, the distillery originally was Dan calls distillery. So to understand the property, it's 313 acres. Have you ever been out to that property? Uh, the Dan call farm. Did you ever come out? You have to come out. Yeah. It's beautiful. We've completely restored it to the way it was when Nearest and Jack lived there. But the distillery was Dan, it was, it was called Daniel and call. And that was what was distillery number seven. Now on the second floor of the home, it was treated as a time capsule. Do you know what year would that have been? So that was, this is what we know for sure is that it was prior to 1871. So in 1871 is when the, uh, revenuers came through, they changed the, the actual district numbers. They changed the district numbers. And it was interesting because it w- it started off as being district number five distillery number seven. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, when it was changed, it was changed to distillery number 16 and district number four. So that happened in 1871 when it went from being, it was in Lincoln County where the line was drawn. It ended up being more County thing. That's interesting is, is Jack was pretty PO'd about it. And he's in the papers as saying such because no other distillery number changed except for Jack's. Mm-hmm. So it's almost like they intentionally did that because all of his marketing was not based on his name at that point. All of his marketing was based on his distillery number, huh. which was distillery number seven. And so for whatever, reason, not a single distillery's numbers changed except for Jack's. And he changed from number seven to number 16. So that was in 1871. Now in 1884, he purchases the property that he's currently at. Mm -hmm. And my guess is, is that's what you're referring to in terms of the original RD 
Right. Was for where he then went. Cause you said this was what year? I don't, it was 1880s, mid late 1880s, yeah. maybe 1890s. I can't yeah. remember. So the property that he bought was, was uh Tolly and Eaton's property. Yeah. So he would have taken over whatever was their RD number. Okay. Cause there's also on that same list and same page, there is a Tolly and Eaton even separately from yep. that. There's yeah. Tolly and Eaton there. So the way that they would do it, maybe there's a, a Hughes and Eaton as well. There was anyway. lots of Eaton's, lots of tallies, lots of Hughes. Well, actually Colonel Hughes had, was just pretty much his own, but you had, they would move around based on the spring. So that particular property that Jack purchased had been shut down for a while. So when he came into it, it hadn't been operational for a while. Tolly and Eaton were somewhere completely different. And I can't remember who he ended up buying. I have to go back and look at these records, but who he ended up buying that property from I don't recall, but that particular property is the number that you're likely referring to. Yeah. Uh, because at the Dan Call Farm, where Jack Daniel Distillery began, so all of the original legal documents for Jack Daniel Distillery start at the Dan Call Farm. Yeah. And okay. they don't move until the current location until 1884. But if you're looking at documents in the late 1880s, then you would be looking at the current cave uh, spring. Right. Yeah. Okay. Well, so this is also leading me into something that's, that I really want to ask you about. And that is relative to history and storytelling and the way things get written down or understood, whether it be, you know, having something being written down or just oral history or whatever. So when we were researching our history and everything, we're, we're as rigorous as we could be, you know? Um, or as we knew how to be, and, and we still continue to always be looking for something and, and every now and then we'll just come across some cool fact or meet someone who says, Oh, I have this connection to X, Y, and Z, and I can tell you this, or, you know, there was this brand that existed and blah, blah, blah. Um, but the fact is like, we're in the United States of America and American history, um, and especially back then in the kind of pre-industrial pre like widespread literacy South in particular was kind of recorded anecdotal or unofficial ways. And so, and you had a lot of it burn. Sure. When you think about it, we don't have an 1890 census, right? Because a good portion of it burned. And so then the government decided, well, if some of it doesn't exist, then none of it's going to exist. So they then burned the entire records for 18. I mean, we only do a census every 10 years. Yeah. They burned a decade's work because one portion of the country didn't have it. That's why we have the National Archives now is to make sure nothing like that ever happens again. uh, That's crazy. I mean, I I did not know that. Um, But so in this vein, I'm curious from your experience, what were kind of the biggest challenges of your research? Stuff that burned down. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) No, I mean, it's, it is, there are, we have a, a full decade of, of a, so we have the 1880 census. Absolutely. We have an 1880 census, right? And then we have a 1900 census. So everything that happened that we would normally use the census for from 1881 to 1899, we don't have. Mm-hmm. We have no actual documented records. So for nearest, the thing that was so so challenging is. Could you imagine that happening now? Oh God, That'd no. Be, but this is yeah. again. This is this is this is literally why the National Archives was created. Yeah, is because just stupidity like that happened. 
to records because in that time people were like, well, who would care about these records, I, you know, a hundred years from now, like yeah. who cares without being like too much of a conspiracy theorist about it. I'm curious. I wonder if there was something like some sort of gerrymandering aspect to that, where there's someone sees something and they're like, Ooh, maybe we, maybe we need to make it go away. Get this go who knows? away. And here's a, here's a convenient excuse to do so. That, that usually is the case, right? There, yeah. there usually is a reason that someone does something like that. But when you take Lynchburg, for instance, the, the entire town was destroyed multiple times through multiple different things, fire, burn the whole town, square down, burn down the city hall, burn down all that stuff. And then you have this great hailstorm that came through there that destroyed everything. Like who would think a hailstorm could destroy everything, but yeah. this hailstorm literally destroyed everything. So you have all these different things that happened over the years there that it's a wonder that any of their documents survived. Well, is, is there any, like, where would you find the biggest concentration of the most useful facts in your research? Was well, there one thing you're like, this is a gold mine? I the, the more County archives. Yeah. So what happened is, is that you can tell the, Clyde to no Clyde is fine. <laughs> Clyde is fine. The, what what happens is is that you end up with a lot of people, and, and this is in the South in general, and I'm sure when you bought your house, you probably found a whole bunch of documents in the attic or in the basement that you have no idea what to do with. Well, one thing that I will say that we did find, it, in fact, we didn't find it, but we had been told that there were, there was something, the house is like officially on record as being built in 1930. But then we found out it was in fact built probably sometime in the 20s, but what happened there is a fire in the archives or wherever all this information was being held and a lot of a lot in in 1930 yeah. and so a lot of the stuff prior to 1930 just housing records and all that yeah. were burned and yeah. so this house's official sort of birthday is 1930 when in fact it was, it was 19, know, yeah. within the previous but, decade. Well, if you consider that we're getting really good with electrical now, right? And yeah. But you still have electrical fires even to this day with yeah. all the codes, with all the regulations. We are but human. Right. So imagine at that period of time, you don't have a building department. You don't have someone who's going through and doing MEP checks. You don't have all the rest of the stuff. And the houses, by the way, are built out of wood. Right. Right. And so, and not fire retardant yeah. either. And so things would just, a, a single spark would burn down an entire a block. county yeah, courthouse yeah. and everything around it. And so there is, there is absolutely the case that a lot of stuff burned down simply because of that stuff. But a lot of stuff just is in people's attics and in their basement. So a part of how I was able to uncover so much is every Friday I took out an ad in the local newspapers and it literally, the ad said, you know, author, author needs your help. And it had the last names of the people that I was researching. It had Daniel Green, the, the um, Wagoners and who, the Call family. And, and it was really simple. If you have any documents in your attic or your basement with these last names and you don't know who they are, please call me or stop by the Dan Call Farm. Mm. That's literally the ad. And I would have people who would reach in and say, hey, we have this box that my, my wife got from the county courthouse before, you know, that was there, before, someone had saved it before it burned the first time or whatever. And they just literally had it in their house. It had never been transferred to an archives. It hadn't been transferred to the current courthouse. 
it just was in their house. Yeah. And it was for, they said, we have a document for Minnie Green. Does that name ring a bell? I said, that's Neris's daughter. And I've not been able to confirm a single thing out of the census that she existed. Hmm. Can I come over and grab that document? And, and she happened to have been suing some guy over a, a property dispute or something like that. But if it weren't for that document, there was nothing else because she's a woman. So she wasn't paying taxes. Mm. So there was literally no other document that I could have looked at and said she was alive. That would lead me to finding more information if it weren't for that particular document. Yeah. But it was literally in someone's house. Yeah. And nowhere else. It's so amazing. Like little clues like that. Again, uh, reference to finding your roots. It's just you find one little thing and it just unravels this whole totally unknown thread, you know, from, from before where you, it's just, this is magical. I can't believe we found this like beautiful vein. One of, of Neris's descendants, when I first came down and I was doing the research and I'm, I'm looking for all this stuff with Neris, 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 because that's what he went by. Mm -hmm. And then she says, well, you know, his, his legal name isn't nearest. It's Nathan. Is it, what do you mean? You know? So then that gave me a whole new path to, to begin to search and to look at, okay, well, what's the reason he would have changed his name from Nathan or chosen to use nearest versus Nathan? Why wouldn't he have gone off of his legal name? Well, Nathan Bedford Forrest, of course, was the most well-known slave trader, the largest slave trader in Tennessee, literally over a thousand slaves a year. He traded. Better make a statue for him. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. God bless. Uh, And, but in, in, for his forest escorts, where he gathered everyone was Lynchburg. Yeah. Ah. And so you had this man coming through there, this Confederate still, you know, in, 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 in terms of Confederate generals, he's still considered up there, right? Mm, As yeah. one of the, the top. But we also know that he was the first Grand Wizard of the Ku Klux Klan. Yeah. And so you have this man who's coming through Lynchburg and Lynchburg was absolutely a Confederate town. And so he's coming through Lynchburg and, and his entire Force escorts was out of Lynchburg. So it's no wonder that Nearest would have chosen to go by Nearest instead of Nathan. Yeah. But just knowing that his birth name or his legal name that he had been given was Nathan gave me something else to go off of to begin to search. Totally. I mean, I have yet to meet someone named Adolf in my current <laughs> life. I'll tell you that much. Yeah, it's not totally exactly sense. it's not exactly a name that you would want. But yeah. you and Charlie did most of your research, right? Mm-hmm. So with, with me, because because I'm looking and and trying to get information from in, for enslaved people or formerly enslaved people, by the time this book was was done, over thirty historians, archivists, archaeologists, genealogists that had been pulled into this to help because the, the documents just to piece the smallest thing together. Like yeah. the fact, if you think about it, it wasn't until I came along that anyone that's currently living had any idea distillery number seven existed. Mm-hmm. That's, and it wasn't just this generation because even Connor uh, Motlow and those guys, the last reason that was given for that they came up with for this, why he, why Jack called it old number seven, Connor had come up with that. Connor was like, Connor Motlow being Connor is, is his, is Jack's great nephew. 
Okay. Sorry. I lived with these with these characters in my head oh, for so many years uh, you know, that I feel like Connor's walking down the street. Sure. So Jack, when he passed away, he left his distillery to Lim, his his nephew Lim and his le- his nephew Dick. Somehow Lim got Dick to turn over his portion of it to Lim because prohibition was coming and you know Lim would be able to deal with that and Dick didn't want to be bothered with that, whatever. So Lim ended up owning uh, all of it that wasn't owned by investors and lawyers and stuff like that. And so you have Lim and then Lim's four sons are who took over the distillery after uh, Lim. So okay. the last of, of Jack. And you said Lim took it over from Jack. From Jack. Yeah. Lim and Dick took it over from Jack. Yeah. And actually Jack didn't pass away until uh, Jack passed away in 19... 19- 11. Yes. He passed away in 1911, but he turned over the distillery in 1907. Okay. That's, what's curious. I'm like, did he, was it because he died or he did it before he, was, he died? He was sick. He was really sick. Most huh. people don't know how sick Jack was. His, we know that he had one leg amputated, but it seems more likely he had both legs amputated. He was, uh, he was quite ill. He was bedridden a lot. You see in newspapers, them bringing him back and forth to the hospital in Nashville, because at that time it was big news. If someone went into the hospital that people knew it was big news. If someone vacationed, like yeah. it literally oh, was yeah. in the social paper, oh, sex, yeah. social section it's of the so paper. Funny. I love seeing these. I mean, cause we've run across a lot of these and that's how we found out like Charles Nelson would have this picnic every year on the 4th of July. Yes. And it's like, this is not a gossip section. This no. is the real newspaper. This is the real news section. Or it is a gossip section like, basically. Literally Jack on the, on the fourth, I think it's the, either the second or the fourth Sunday of May every year, he would th- throw this huge event for the whole community. And he had this, this big house with this huge ballroom. And he'd basically do this, this seated kind of meal, but he would do it a hundred at a time. And so he'd have like four different groups that came to have a meal with him on that May Sunday he every not year. He's making it easy oh, on himself. Oh, he's no joke. Oh he was God. the ultimate party planner. But he would do it every year. And everybody talked about, so the papers would talk about this grand event that he threw every year. He should have had a TV show on Bravo. Yeah, for sure. He definitely <laughs> should have. But, you know, the, 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 the searching for the history is you have to be so committed to it because oh, yeah. it is so easy to halfway through it go, I have enough. Right. And, and then I think a lot of people do that because they're afraid if I keep digging, will I find something that will actually tell a different story than yes. the one I want to sto- tell? Right. I, I am, I'm very interested in that too, because I mean, have you, have you come across any of those things or things that you're like, that, that maybe change the story or complicates or at least adds to it? Well, there was, there was one thing that people kept telling me that there were, uh, some, uh, folks who got hung on Jack's property. Hmm. And it made no sense to me because everything I knew about Jack was he's an incredible person who absolutely did not see people through the lens of race, not in any way, shape or form. When you look at his distillery, Lynchburg was only about 25% African-American and Jack Daniel distillery was absolutely the place that you wanted to work for. If you lived anywhere in the area until Arnold air force base came, Jack absolutely paid the most. And then when Arnold air force came and started paying more, Jack then started paying more than the air force base. Mm -hmm. So Jack, I mean, that's where you wanted to work. His workforce was 50% African-American. He literally had to import people 
from other towns to have that type of statistic. Mm. So you're talking about someone who it was, I tell people all the time, I truly believe that Jack is the first ally. When you talk about allyship, we hear a lot about that now these days. Mm -hmm. When you talk about allyship in corporate America for any companies that we still know to this day, He's the only ally that we know of that goes back to the 19th century. And so I I think it's remarkable. And so it made no sense when people kept telling me people were hung on Jack's property. So it sent me down this rabbit hole of trying to understand how in the world could that happen? And it just made no sense to me. And it was the case that four people were actually hung on uh, at the edge of Jack's property, but what the pe- the part that people didn't understand, and you really had to dig through so many newspaper articles and old jail records to get to what the real story was. And the real story was in, in that day when a black person was accused of something, even when they were acquitted, the mob would decide they would revenge their own justice. Yeah, And all of these people had all been charged with burning down, going back to the burning stuff, Mm. with burning down barns. Every single one had been acquitted. And they were all living on Jack's property. So he literally gave them housing. I said, Jack was running a halfway house. (laughs) (laughs) He literally gave them housing. And when the mob showed up at what would, I guess, be considered a guest house in these days. But when the mob showed up at their home and called for them to come out, it's like a hundred people in, in robes, hooded. No one ever called them the Ku Klux Klan, but they, many of them had white hoods on. And then there was one particular one that had an all red robe and an, a, a red hood. And that's who shows up. What we know is that they were not from Lynchburg. They were all from outside of Lynchburg. That part we have in the records from Kate, the case and all the rest of that stuff. But it wasn't until I came across articles in Nashville that I realized what happened, which is Jack had just been in the hospital here. Mm. And then he had been bedridden for two weeks leading up to this incident. So he could not have gotten out of the bed because one of the people who they lynched was his nurse. Oh, Oh, wow. God. But if you think about it on face value, people in the community are saying people were hung on Jack's property. Then you think instinctively, yeah. Jack's not a good guy. But he just wasn't there. He wasn't physically able to. He like wasn't physically able to. Yeah. Literally, he's bedridden, and his nurse is one of the people who God. they call out and hang him. Wow, that's wild. So, so there were there were things like that where I had to dig so deep to try to understand what happened because, on face value, it made no sense for what I understood this story to be, mm-hmm. which is a remarkable story of honor and respect and love and, and heritage. And, but a story like that in the middle of it becomes quite the thorn. Mm-hmm. And if it had turned out that I could not prove that Jack was bedridden, this was his nurse, he had just been in the hospital, there was nothing he could do. This story goes up in smoke a little bit mm-hmm. because all that stands is the fact that these people were lynched on his property and it made news all over the country. Yeah. Yeah. People invent their own context when they'll hear oh, one thing. They the assume, headline yeah. everywhere were four Negroes lynched on Jack Daniels property. Yeah. Like literally San Francisco ran it. New York ran it. Everybody ran this story. Yeah. 
Yeah, I mean, th- this is something that I, I always kind of have in the back of my mind, especially in the past few years, just having like historical research and we, we wouldn't, we would not be in this, I would not be in this business if it, if the story weren't true and factually correct and accurate and all this. But yeah, the fact is there are things that like you, you just don't find until you find it. And so I've always been of the thought that like, it's not, you know, in the future, who knows what we'll come across, but we've tried, I mean, for this very reason, we try to find whatever it is that's like the most potentially, uh, I don't know, like damaging to, to the sort of good nature of, of this story of Charles Nelson. Yeah. If it's true, factually accurate, I mean, talking like capital T truth. Yeah. That is the foundation. That is the important thing. And that's what is interesting. Yeah. Not interested in like making something up because it's better for marketing. Just not. Um, and so I, yeah, I'm, I'm curious. It's really interesting. It sounds like you feel the, the exact same way. Oh, absolutely. And the thing is, is I think for a lot of, a lot of folks, there's a fear that if they dig too much, they might find something, which is, I think why, why Brown Foreman ran from this story. Not, I think I know for sure in why they didn't keep digging. Because if you think about the story on, on surface, right, it is a, your, your brand that at the time I came to this, Jack Daniels literally represented more than 90% of their value, right? Mm -hmm. So you have your Woodford, you have your Herodura, those things are growing, but old Forester there it's, it's coming back, but over 90% was, was Jack. And then you have this story that just kind of won't go away about the fact that this enslaved person is who actually taught him and, and, and who was, you don't think that story is going to be a positive one. You think it's going to be like every other story between an enslaved person and a white person in the, I took advantage of it. Absolutely. And so that's, and, and here's the thing, it would have been a fair thing to believe yeah, because that is typically what the story is. And so literally every person who has run that company has put the story in the closet, hoped it kind of went away. And it wasn't until 2016 that you have this guy who was their, their chief brand officer and who was the president of Jack, who's from Australia originally and wasn't, he wasn't born here. Mm -hmm. He didn't really understand, like he understood a top line level of there was, there were slaves here and there were all the rest of that stuff, but he didn't really understand. Yeah. And, and he would say, he actually said it, he's quoted in, in my book on, in saying this is that if he had been from here, he absolutely would have never shared the story, which mm. is what I found was that story in the New York times. He never would have green light that story because the, he just didn't understand how deep rooted that was and how people would respond to that. Yeah. And obviously when the story came out immediately, people took their own storyline and ran with it. Jack is a slave owner and he stole the recipe, hid the slave, all the rest of that kind of stuff. And, and so then that happens and back into the closet, the story goes, they're like, we don't want any parts of this. Yeah. And so what prior presidents had feared might happen if they share the story of Nearest is exactly 
what happened. And if you didn't have someone like me who actually is African-American come and do research on the story and go, guys, I think, I think y'all have this story wrong. I don't think it's a negative story at all. As a matter of fact, I think it's a positive story. I think it's a great story, but no one in that company could have, could have told that story. Everybody leading that company, at least at that time were white male. Yeah. You can't, you can't be white male and, and decide that this story is a positive one. <laughs> like the person telling that story would have to be black. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. And, and, and so that I think is, is a part of the, the challenge that we've run into is, is that previously you've never had a person of color running a distillery here in America, especially a, a whiskey distillery, a bourbon distillery. And so the people who've been looking at the history of blacks in whiskey have always been white. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. At least those within the industry. Right. They've always been white. Yeah, yeah. And there are certain nuances that you, and it, 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 to no fault of a person who was not black, but there are certain nuances you're just not going to get. Yeah. So after telling this story a million and one times, perhaps 10 million and two. Possibly. Um, and hearing others tell it back to you yeah. about this. This is something familiar to me. Is there any part of it that you feel hasn't really been fully appreciated by the people here, by the people who hear it? Or I guess in other words, like after so many tellings, what element of the story is most resonant to you? Like what, what do you see when you tell the story? Yeah. For me, when I began researching the story, we're in the middle of the most divided election I've ever seen in, in my lifetime. Right. Mm -hmm. And so that's the 2016 election. That's what was going on when I began the research. And the more that I uncovered about this story and the more I was convinced that this story was a story of love, honor, and respect, it became my earmuffs for everything else going on in the world. So people would be talking about this is happening, this is happening, this is happening. But I had on these earmuffs, which were my research, that I was able to really dive into this and just go, listen, if they could figure this out in the 19th century, we sure as hell can figure it out in the 21st century. Right. And and so that became my, my glimmer of hope, if you will, was this story in it itself. So a part of diving into this is that I, I think I just didn't want to be a part of the negativity that was surrounding this country at that time in terms of race and saying there's, this is, there has to be something that we can look forward to in terms of hope, in terms of instruction, in terms of how do we do this better? How do we make this better? So this story for me, it, that's what it's always been about. The whiskey has always been secondary it by far. Now, the reason why we work so hard to make sure it's so good and wins all the awards and all the rest of that stuff is because nobody buys something twice for the story. Right. They'll only buy it once for the story. Yeah. And and so the juice is important that it be really, really good. But for me, what's most important is that Neeris's legacy is, is forever known. That's what I spend all my time on. So I have to say, I give consumers an, an enormous amount of credit. It's very rare for me to talk to people who don't know the story. Yeah. And that's a beautiful thing at this point is that we have been telling it nonstop and people have been listening. So question about this, believe it or not, interviews full of questions. Have you ever felt any like reservations about the, 
use or the continued use of such a powerful human story for marketing purposes? Does that make sense? No. Uh, The question makes sense, but absolutely zero reservation. Because for us and any person who works in my company, what you will find is, is that we don't really consider ourselves in the whiskey business. We consider ourselves in the legacy cementing business, (laughs) which means our priority (laughs) is the story. Yeah. So no, absolutely not. When you come to our, when you come to our distillery, it's literally, uh, I don't know if you know this, we're now the seventh most visited distillery in the world. It's wild. And every single weekend we've got between four, 8,000 people at the distillery and what they're there for is the story. Yeah. They want to hear it firsthand and that the tour is 90 minutes. Only 30 minutes of that is about the whiskey. Mm -hmm. Other 60 minutes history. Yeah. I mean, I, I, it's funny because Charlie and I would kind of just go back and forth on this where I, you know, my job primarily is and has been in the production aspect of it. Mm-hmm. But I'm also here as, you know, now, especially more the face of, of the brand and all this. And so I, I'm a little bit more in that, but we would always go back and forth on our tours of like, he'd always think this is, especially if I were for physically the person giving the tour, mm-hmm. I would get all stuck on, on the details of production and all. And he's like, listen, you can visit a distillery anywhere, but what you can't get anywhere is the story that we that's have. Exactly, that's, that's exactly, yeah. right. I, the, 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 it's funny because you come and, and, and for us, it is a still is a still, a fermentation tank. Everything is, you can see that at every yeah. single distillery. And it looks the same, whether it's it, physically active at the moment or not. Listen, and by the way, it's all made by Vendome. Yeah. It's not like we're even, <laughs> it's not even like we've got different stills and different, everybody gets it from the exact same place. Yeah. So we essentially all have the exact same thing. And so if you don't have a story that's interesting, your distillery tour is kind of boring, yeah, right? Certainly and, can be. And and so for for us, we actually spend very little time on production because we know that there's a lot of distilleries that they're going to go to that that's all they have to talk about. Yeah. Yeah. Um there was something that I wanted to go back to. Mm-hmm. And it was more of uh almost more modern history. You said that in 1978 the story of Nearest Green kind of disappeared. Mhm. Go back to that. How did that happen and why? Yeah, it's, it's, so when the last of nearest's, uh, the last of Jack's descendants to run the distillery was Regor Motlow. He was the president of Jack Daniels. So that is, and you have to, if, if I sound like I know the people personally, right. Cause I've been living in their world for mm-hmm. so long. So you have to go, could you please say who that person is? So Jack's nephew, Lim, his four sons who they call, called the shirt sleeve brothers because they really rolled up their sleeves, got to work. Right. Those four sons, all of them did, were involved in some way, shape, or form. Well, Reger was the last one of Jack's descendants to run the distillery. The, the Jack Daniels sold to Brown Foreman in 56, mm-hmm. but they still had Jack's family running the distillery. Right. The last one to run it, Reger, died in 78. Yeah. The stories disappeared in 78. Okay, so it was, it was kind of more a matter of the oral tradition of it and therefore it disappeared in that respect? No, no, it, it wasn't oral because 
Lim and his boys made sure that when they gave interviews, that they were very clear that Nearest was the first master distiller, that the Lincoln County process that we are known for, that that came into Lincoln County with the enslaved people. They they were always very clear in putting that on record. It wasn't mm-hmm. just oral. The reason why the story disappeared is, say, for instance, you write a story and it's, you know, on Nelson's Greenbrier or something like that. And say it's in the press today and 50 years from now, they're not going back and referencing a press story from today. You have to still be telling that story. It has to be a part of your origin story for that to continue to be told. So So more of a decision like this is us. We're talking about ourselves now. We're not necessarily just talking about. So in 70, prior to Reger passing away, the tours that were at Jack Daniels, which were very different than the tours today. They were far more casual, but they were still, in fact, tours. Mm-hmm. Nearest's descendants would bring their friends there to go tour because they were talking about their ancestor. Mm-hmm. And so it was a very it's a moment of pride to bring people from college. Everybody knows the Jack Daniel brand, and you're telling them, yeah, that was my great-grandfather, come to the, and, and you're taking them on the tour. So this was, I mean, all of Nearest's descendants all played at the distillery and brought their friends from college, and this was just, they were so well-known and so well-respected, you literally could not walk through the distillery as a green and not have... Reger, Connor, all of them literally stop and spend their whole day with you just because you were a green. Mm. That continued on into the 70s. So that's all the greens ever knew. Well, one of them goes back in 79 and another one starts working for the distillery in 79. And at that point, by the time they both were there, they the story had stopped being told. Mm. Okay. And so, and well, and then that basically brings us to today when you kind of catch wind of this and yeah. you, so how 40 did, years later is, yeah, is yeah. essentially is the gap, right? So that's, that's two generations yeah. that have passed in which Nearest's name was not spoken. And what was, what was the first time? I mean, I feel like this is probably maybe the question you get asked most. It's okay. Uh, but what was the first time that you heard this about this story? How did it, how did it all germinate for you? New York times. Yeah. So it was on, I was in Singapore. It was on the cover of the New York times international edition. And it was a photo of Jack with his leadership team. The only photo he ever took with his, with any, in any person other than Jack, he took a photo, maybe two by himself. And then he has one photo with his team. That's all the photos he ever took in his lifetime. And this one photo, everyone around him is white, as you would expect, but he cedes the center position of the photo to a black man. Mm. That's not only is that unheard of. Yeah. That's unheard of now. Forget, forget the fact that that happened in 1904. Mm -hmm. That is unheard of today. Sure. And then, and so from then it was just, you have this spark of. I need to write a book about this. Well, who is this black man? That, that yeah. becomes the first question. Yeah. Because people were guessing who he was, but nobody knew who he was. When you have a ubiquitous American brand and the founder, owner, the face of the brand takes the time to seed the center position to the photo. And what a lot of people miss in this photo is that everybody in the photo is sitting except Jack. He's standing. 
because he never grew to more than five foot two. Mm-hmm. But also what they don't notice is what George, which is nearest his son, who is the black man at the center of the photo, George is hiding his cane and the fact that Jack only has one leg. Uh, his leg, his right leg in that photo is amputated. Yeah. And so George, he has allowed George to cover his infirmity. Mm-hmm. People didn't know that. Yeah. That Jack only had one leg. Ah, uh, the original Instagram filter. Right? Right? <laughs> and and so that he would trust this person at that level, right? To be the person. Now, mind you, Lim, his nephew, who he turns the distillery over to, is in the photo. Mm. Down next to Jack, though. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. The, I mean, it's amazing. Those little details that you don't, you you know, picture worth a thousand words right mm. there. I mean, that's something you couldn't know just looking at the photo uh, unless you know that and understand the historical con- context behind it. Yeah. Um, is, uh, so at what point did, did this story and, and the seeds of this become, or sort of determine the direction of your professional life, My life? from that point? I mean, what I, were you I, doing I at that point? I think almost immediately, but it's only because, and it's something that Keith says, is that my, my thinking and my speaking and my doing happen simultaneously. Mm-hmm. So I'll, I'll give you a really good example. He has a brewery that is being built out in, uh, out in Shelbyville, in downtown Shelbyville. And it's an old box factory. And it was going up for, th- the community had to bid on it because it was owned by the city. Mm-hmm. And so you had to have- You're talking about like modern day right now. Like right Keith, now. Yeah, Keith yeah, yeah. is doing this? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. Yeah. And so it was literally him- uh, looking to bid for it. We're in Lake Oconee, Georgia. We're having lunch at this Mexican restaurant and he has to go before the city with some kind of concept, some kind of idea. And for two weeks he had been stuck just trying to come up with a name. So we're at lunch and he's sharing with me and I'm not, I mean, I'm so full. My schedule is so full with near screen distillery and, and uncle nearest that I'm not paying attention to what's going on at a box factory. Mm -hmm. And, and so he shares with me the challenge he's been having and he's like, I can't come up with a name. So we had literally just gotten, uh, we just placed an order for chips and he shares this to me, shares this with me. And so I sat there and within two minutes, I was like beer hops, you should call it classic hops. And it should be all about, Motown music and have old school jukeboxes. There should be an actual car hop on the outside so people can pull in like it's Sonic. They can order their burgers. They can order their whatever it is. And on the inside, you should have classic cars because you love classic cars. And so it's a tie on your love for classic cars, your love for classic music, the the hops of the beer and the car hops on the outside. And he literally sits there because there was only about a 90 second difference between when we asked for chips and when the chips came. Yeah. So the chips hit the table and he looks at me and he's like, how did you do that? (laughs) And he's like, I mean, I know I've been married to you all these years, but this is absurd that you can do that in the period of time that it takes for a person because he hadn't mentioned this project to me before. So it was the first I was hearing of it. Yeah. He's like, how did you come up with a full concept, the name, the branding, the everything? And, and so I was like, well, don't get too used to it yet. Let me go on. Let me look for their online real estate. So then I go to GoDaddy and put in classic hops. It's available, which is crazy, but it was. So then I send a, an email to our trademark attorneys 
in a matter of five minutes, concept, name, the trademark, and the URLs. Yeah. Done. (laughs) So that's how I work. Yeah. That is just how my brain moves. And so the moment I saw this and it's like, this is not a proven story, but this is a ubiquitous brand that's known around the world. And people will be interested in this story, especially if it's a good story. Mm -hmm. And so in my head, it is, I can already see everyone is talking about the story as negative, but he ceded the center position to a black man. If this is a negative story, if a person is trying to hide a person and steal their recipe, they don't see the center position of their only photo right. to that person. So I was like, everybody's got this story wrong. Yeah. I'm going to get this story right. So then I could instinctively, I can see the movie. I can see the, like immediately. So yeah, it wasn't, but how, when did it actually happen where it would upend everything was the day I showed up in Lynchburg. And that was about two and a half months later, Mm -hmm. a little more than two months later. Did you have the idea initially like that moment when you read the newspaper and saw it, did the idea for the book start first and then for the actual whiskey? Oh yeah. 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 Because if, 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 if the book doesn't exist, this is all about a story. Well, also because you were already an author. Right. I was already an author. I'm already a USA Today bestselling author, a New York Times bestselling author. People are already waiting for my next book. They're expecting my next book. And I didn't have a story that I was interested to write at the time. Mm-hmm. I had written the two stories I wanted to write and I was kind of done. But in the publishing world, when you've had success, that's not really the way that it works. There's an expectation that you basically keep going till you no longer succeed. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and so... So there was always an expectation of like, when is your next book? And, and for me, if I'm not truly inspired by something, if something does not excite me when I wake up in the morning, I 100% am not going to do it. Yeah. It'll fall flat. I'm not going to do it. And so for me, I hadn't come across a story in my own life because I have to be tied to it for me to write about it. I'm not writing about like a lot of people will write about things on the outside world, right? Mm -hmm. That's outside of them. And I won't, it, I have to actually have some type of tie to it for me to be interested in it whatsoever. Yeah. And at that moment, there was no story I had come across un- at, until that point that I said, oh, this is the one. Yeah. So in that moment, if that photo represented what I thought it did, which as it turned out, represented so much more than I thought I did, but at the very basic minimum, it did represent what I thought it represented then that meant that, that I had my, my next story. So what, where did that all come from? I mean, where'd you grow? You grew up in LA. I grew up in, yeah, Pasadena, born and raised. And is your family, how far back in that area do they go back? Oh, they were first. So my father was a, he grew up in Houston, Texas, picking cotton. It's like all the kids did there, uh, all the black kids anyway. And he grew up picking cotton. And then he went to Southern university. He got a scholarship for pole vaulting, which to this day, I don't quite understand. (laughs) My father was not tall, not that athletic, at least, you know, I've seen photos of him with his pole and you know, he was athletic then, but even still he's short. I just don't get it. Yeah. But I feel like pole vaulting is better to be maybe short and stocky. Cause you get, like he was, he was short and yeah. stocky. So maybe yeah. I just need to watch pole vaulting tall, more to understand it. Yeah. I guess it's all about getting weight on the back of the pole so it can 
fling you up. Anyway, uh, whatever. It's physics. You know I'm, what? That might make sense because for the life of me, I just could not see him yeah, as a pole like vaulter. A little cannonball instead of an arrow. Kind of. A <laughs> you thing. know what? That makes a lot of sense, actually. Ah, yeah. Look at you. Look at you. <laughs> so yes, he got in a scholarship for pole vaulting and he was at Southern University and decided to participate in a sit-in and got kicked out, which is obviously what they do. And, and what year was that? This was in 19. Ooh, don't get me to tell the story. Cause I know more about Nearest's family than I know about my own. Yeah. <laughs> this was in shoot. What year was this? This would have been in the late, this would have been in the late sixties. So I'm going to yeah. guess maybe around 68. I need to go back and look though. At least, yeah. I mean, I'm guessing. Let, let me like tell you how ridiculous this could, is, is, yeah. is I even found out about the fact that he was kicked out of Southern for participating in a civil rights demonstration from Clay Risen of the New York Times. Oh yeah. So when Clay was doing a story on me, he sends me over some information about my father and he says, can you confirm for me that this is true? And I responded to him and I said, I've never heard any of this. So I'm going to say no, but I'll call my mother and confirm. And I call my mom and she says, oh yeah, all that's true. <laughs> like, <Yeah>. What? How <laughs> does no one in our family know that he was kicked out so for participating in a civil rights demonstration? And that's how he got to LA and started doing music because the civil rights organization, they said, if you get kicked out for participating, we will buy you a one-way train ticket or plane ticket to any place in the U.S., that was the only thing they could offer these kids. Mm -hmm. And so my father wanted to be a writer and a producer in music. So LA baby. Yeah. And that's how he ended up in LA. And then Barry Gordy had started Motown in, uh, in Detroit. Mm -hmm. So no, this has to be early sixties because Barry had started Motown in Detroit, heard my father's music, called my dad and asked if he'd be willing to come out to Detroit and write and produce some music for Motown. So my father was one of the original hit makers for Motown. And a lot of his music goes back to the mid sixties. So yeah, it would have to have been the, the early sixties, if not late fifties. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. And what's your, so is Weaver your, uh, it's name? my, no, or Mary, sorry, your Mary, my maiden name. is Wilson. Wilson. Okay. Mm -hmm. So what's your dad's Frank Wilson, Frank Wilson. Yeah. Well, gosh, that's how I ended up in LA yeah. was, was, a was this, this moment that was, would have otherwise been a terrible moment. Right. Yeah. And he made something great out of it. So it's funny because I have my dad, uh, my parents ended up in LA. My, my mom was like, she grew up in, in Southern California. Her family was from Jersey and I, she moved to the family moved to LA when she was seven, I think. But my dad grew up here in Nashville. And then after college, he went to USC film school. Uh, and to, you know, to get in the entertainment business, get Absolutely, in the movie business. Yeah. And, uh, it's a funny story. I, I don't, I have no reason to believe this is not true. Uh, but again, it's like whenever my dad will, he didn't tell me this story. I yeah. kind of heard it third hand from a friend of his or in a combination of that and my mom and maybe my uncle or whatever. But, uh, it was that he went out there. He didn't apply for school. He just started going to classes. <laughs> And, and I, I mean, like this is in 67. Dad. Yeah. Uh, so 1967 at USC film school and he started going to classes and, uh, and like the end of the first semester or year, the teacher was kind of doing, you know, end of the year, end of the semester audits, uh, yeah. audits and stuff. <laughs> and, and the story was that he said, Mr. Nelson, uh, we have no record of you actually attending class or school, but I know you've been in class. 
the problem is you're, you're kind of at the top of the class. So we'd like for you to stay. Wow. <laughs> but, and so then he did, he graduated from film school and then, Get then out of was, here. worked on movies for yeah, like 20, <laughs> 20 something years, right at 20 years. Uh, that is a, wild. Yeah. He was a, uh, sound mixer. So anyway, yeah. Similar. I love kind that of thing. People, I mean, Similar, I love but that. Not, yeah. Not, well, and I, exactly you know, I think the reason why we never knew about this part of my father's history is because he always focused on what was good. Mm-hmm. And I definitely have picked that up from him. Like everything around can be going crazy. And I'm always focused on what is the good in this? What is the lesson in this? What is it that I can take from this that can be the catalyst of what I do next? Mm hmm. You're never going to see me focused on what is wrong and worrying about something that may or may not happen a month from now or weeks from now, or it's just not, I'm not wired that way. And I Mm. I absolutely got that from my father. I also got from my father this, this idea of, of living your life in which you see people through the lens of grace versus the lens of race. So I give an enormous amount of grace, probably sometimes too much, especially to myself. You know, a lot of people are hard on themselves. I give myself a whole lot of grace. I mean, it's so a, much that is the most, it, it is like priority number one, or I feel like it should be because it, it is. Yeah, you're right. People, you know, you're kind of your, your own worst enemy in so yeah, many ways. And the most, are. I beat myself up all the time and everybody yeah. does. It's like, yeah. And then when you, it's funny because when you see someone in the public eye who maybe doesn't, it's like, what is that egomaniac right. doing? You think you that know? they have ego, right? Yeah. And it's, and the, and the reality is, is that that person just gives themselves a, a lot of grace, isn't beating themselves up. And it can be a fine line. It can, Yeah. 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 But yeah. I, you know, I think that it is, it's interesting because I went to on, on, on this journey every year I do a, a CEO tour. And last year on my CEO tour, I stopped at the, oh gosh, what is the place in the historic Hampton house in Miami? And it's Muhammad Ali stayed there and mm-hmm. Martin Luther King stayed there. And you had all these people that stayed there because blacks could stay there. They couldn't stay anywhere else. Was, That's exactly right? where it was filmed. Yeah. And it's exactly where it happened. And so inside of it, you had a a restaurant and bar, if you will, because they couldn't go outside. So basically black people would come into town. They would stay there. They couldn't really go outside of there. So Mm -hmm. everything was there, the bar, the restaurant, where they're sleeping, all the rest of that stuff. And in that particular place, I always thought that Muhammad Ali was arrogant as hell. Like Mm -hmm. that is how I always looked at him. I think that's how most people look at him when they see him. And then when I went into that place and there is a photo of him sitting on one of the stools. And so I sat in the same stool as he did. And they, 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 I mean, it looks exactly as it did when those men used to stay there. And all of a sudden I realized he wasn't arrogant. Those were affirmations Mm -hmm. everywhere in the world that he went, they were telling him you're nobody you're garbage. You're like, they would spew at him the worst things you could ever imagine. Mm-hmm. And he was countering them with, I'm the greatest you've ever seen. Yeah. I'm the most beautiful you've ever seen. <laughs> it was literally, and I never got it until I sat in that seat and understood that you have this man who is the heavyweight champion of the world and he can't walk across the street. He can't go to the bar 
across the street. He has to be in this one place with nothing but Negroes and, and, and like, not that that is a bad thing, but if you don't have a choice. Right. Yeah. So then all of a sudden you can't even be with like you, you have attained all this success. So your money allows you to, to go and eat at different places. And I, but he was still having hamburgers and hot dogs mm-hmm. because he couldn't go where the people spent money. Yeah. And it, you know, the other thing that occurs to me about him in particular, I mean, I, I, not only generational, but like once in a, so many lifetimes kind of individual is yes, there is, there is what is that perceived ego or uh, arrogance or whatever. And it's kind of fascinating. I, I hadn't really thought about it through that lens of it's just affirmations. And that's like trying to kind of lift himself up. He's treating himself well, kind of mentally like, no, I, I am better than what they say they are. He's just doing it publicly. But because the other thing is typically when there is someone who is as egotistical or, you know, megalomaniacal as, as some people probably saw him and and probably still do see him as being, those people are also not typically those of really great intellect and sort of big picture thinking. They're all about themselves, but I mean, he changed so much in the world and for his generation. And just like that is, that is not a typical thing that someone of, of that ilk, uh, really has. And no one around him has ever described him as arrogant Hmm. ever. And I never, I literally never got it until I sat there and said, if I were living in an era in which I was doing this extraordinary thing, but I was still being treated as less than a dog. Yeah. What would I do every day? I would wake up and I would affirm myself because the rest of the world isn't going to affirm me. Now I walk out People pat me on the back for what I've done. They tell me how great of a job and how much it's changed their life and how meaningful it is. And I get patted on the back every day. All I have to do is open up the DMs of my Instagram account and all day it's people encouraging me and saying, keep going. What you're doing has inspired me. You're incredible. Muhammad Ali, he'd walk out on the streets and people would throw stuff at him. Mm -hmm. That's a very different world. So if you are going to believe that you can be the heavyweight champion in the world and you're going to believe that you can beat the very people who are spinning on you, you got to get that confidence from somewhere. It's unbelievable. Like the gift of that kind of confidence, because there's, there's something just natural about that, of course. And being like an elite athlete will, will lend itself pretty well to some good confidence. But but I mean, honestly, even then there have probably been athletes who we oh. never knew were so great, but they just didn't have that natural confidence and they yeah. kind of gave into the, to the negative all around them. It's, it's a like, very, it's a very interesting of, of how we tear down confidence. Mm-hmm. And I think that we tear down confidence because most people lack confidence. Most people it, that is lack. The reason, yeah. Right. And so it makes them uncomfortable to be around people who are perfectly comfortable being exactly who they are and are not going to change and code switch because you're not comfortable. And so those people, a lot of times someone will look at them and and think that they are arrogant and they truly are simply confident. Now, again, there is a fine line, but the thing is, is when you're looking at confidence, if you believe that you are doing it, you're going to go into arrogance really fast. If you believe you are the reason that the success is happening, if you believe that you are the reason that this is happening or that is happening, but when you're confident in there's a greater power, 
I just get to borrow this time. Mm-hmm. Like I'm not even here that long. And there is somebody that's going to come after me who's going to do the same thing that I'm doing, but do it greater than me. And they're going to be borrowing their time. And so for me, I walk into a room and, and one of the, the questions I get the most from people, especially women and people of color is where does your confidence come from? Like, how can you do that? Can you teach me to do that? And I tell them every single time, my confidence isn't in me, that my confidence is what is in me. There is a difference. And so when I'm looking at it, I know at any given moment, if I even thought about being arrogant, I would be afraid that God would be like, and I'm going to give this to somebody else. Mm -hmm. I'm going to give this gift to someone else. I'm going to give this talent to somebody else. I'm going to, I have a healthy fear of God that if I at any time wrong somebody, like there are just aspects of me that are like, When I walk into a room, I never shrink. You will know I'm in the room, Mm -hmm. but it's not because I care that you know I'm in the room. It's because I'm just refusing to shrink because I don't want God to shrink me because he's looking at me and going, I made you this incredible creature to do this particular thing at this set time. And you're going to let other people cause you to shrink. You're not who I created you to be. So I'm going to give this gift to somebody who is, I will not let that happen. That is a, a very unique way of looking at, at that and self-confidence because I, it's something that I've had a lot of, I've struggled with it a lot in my life. I was never as a kid and, and for a lot of times growing up, not very self-confident at all. You know, it was like for what, you know, any, any number of reasons and I've, I've grown into it a whole lot, but it's, I'm always amazed at someone who has something that seems like this natural confidence. And now I I think that the, the magical sort of blend here is that I said, it's a fine line between sort of confidence and, you know, egomania or whatever. But I think the blend is there's some sort of what you're talking about, whether you refer to it as like kind of a fear of God or understanding that it's not you, it's like what is in you, the Mm -hmm. self-awareness. Yeah. Well, you can't, the, the, the difference between true confidence and arrogance is true confidence is rooted in humility. Yes. Arrogance exactly. is rooted in insecurity. Yeah. So the roots are what are different. It's, so the it, fruit that it's bearing is different because its roots are different. Yeah. It's amazing how much people love to eat this rotten fruit. Yeah. Yeah. It's unbelievable. The, uh, I don't know a lot of tricksters around these days. I feel like it's, uh, it's, it's hard though for, because as a lot of parents, I see it all the time is in wanting to teach their children humility. What they really do is they strip them of their confidence mm -hmm. and that's not what they're trying to do. But because they're trying to keep their kids from coming across as, as cocky or arrogant, then what they do is they, they dumb down who those kids are Mm -hmm. and they want them to fit in with other kids and to not stand out and to be more like the crowd. And, but that's not how we were created. It's not what we were destined to be. And so there's always great confusion with the people who choose to live out 
and walk out what they believe their destiny to be because they're such a small percentage. They're almost like aliens. They're so foreign to the people that are watching them that you have to, and we're big on labels, right? Mm -hmm. So you have to come up with some type of label for a person who is like that. Um, but, but again, it goes back to the roots. What is, what is the root? If the root is humility, then the only thing that can spring up is, is confidence. And if the root is insecurity, then what springs up is arrogance. So did your, did you get this from your parents? Did they? No, actually I didn't. You know, my, I, I think that some things are, you have the benefit and beauty of, of learning as you are coming up. And some things you learn because you went through a very difficult, challenging time. And so for me, and I'm super open about this when I was maybe like late teens, I guess maybe 20 late teens or whatever, I tried to commit suicide twice. Mm. And after the second time, I'm in a hospital and I'll never forget it because I've got a, a, a hose down one of my noses and they're pumping charcoal into it because they're trying to absorb all the pills and stuff that I had taken. Mm. And in that moment, you sit there and go, okay, I've tried to take myself out twice. If I can't take myself out, why am I here? Mm -hmm. So I went through a process of just understanding why am I here? And one of the first books that I came across for like six months, I did nothing but read. I went to work. I read, went to work. I've read, I read a stupid amount of books. I think like 70 of them during that period of time and just trying to understand the world and life and all the rest of them. And all the books had a biblical foundation mm -hmm. because that's just who I am. But one of the books was uh, Myers-Briggs and it's Please Understand Me Too. And I did the personality test. T-O-O. T-O-O, yes. Okay. And I'm sorry, no, number two, like Roman numeral two. Okay. Please Understand Me, number two. Okay. Because yeah. there was a Please Understand <laughs> Me one, I guess. The right. book I got was Please Understand Me Too. So okay, I think okay. it was the second volume. An important distinction. Yeah, yeah, I yeah. Asked. I think it's a, I think it's a, it's a, but I took the personality test and discovered that for a woman that I'm less than 1% of the world, mm -hmm. which meant I was trying to be understood by people. And the likelihood that people I was running into every day had never come across my personality type was high. Yeah. So I'm trying to, Caught, like I want friends and I want friends who are like me and I want to fit in and I was never going to fit in and I was never going to be like the people that were around me. But then the, my personality type is the same as Martin Luther King and Gandhi. And like, you can give like all of the lists are all of these people and, and they'll go and Jesus. And I'm like, really? Because Jesus took a personality test. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Or fictional characters. Yeah. yeah. Like we know what Jesus's personality was I'm yeah. like, okay. But, but my point is, is that there it's, I fell in the group of people that are going to transform whatever they are meant to transform, which meant that People around me were not going to understand that. And so from that moment on, imagine being 20 years old and knowing you're probably never going to fit in and it's okay. Mm -hmm. Own exactly who you are and walk in that for the rest of your life to make sure that you're able to accomplish the reason you weren't able to take yourself out. Yeah, that's, uh, I have a lot of thoughts on that. That's really fascinating. I mean, I, the Myers-Briggs thing, I remember kind of learning about that in uh, high school, I think. And I've always been kind of fascinated in the kind of personality tests or, 
you know, so I, I know some people think of them as like, oh, it's just a way to kind of put yourself in a box or whatever. And I can't be put in a box and blah, blah, blah. But I am, I'm a similar way. I mean, it's not the same personality type as, as, you know, Gandhi or Martin Luther King or Jesus. Uh, <laughs> Which I still think it's absurd because I'm positive none of those people took a personality test. Right, right. So they're just assigning stuff based on what I don't know of. But yeah. yeah. But I mean, for me, my I absolutely understand the growing up and not and having people not understand you and not feeling. It's like, what am I? What am I? Like, what's happening? Why mm-hmm. does nobody? I don't feel like anybody is the same as me. That yeah. I'm the same as anybody else. Yeah. Um, and then learn essentially. Uh, I guess within the past, like what, five or six years, I guess about this, um, trait it's called sensory processing sensitivity, SPS. Okay. What is that? Uh, there's a lot of S's in there. So (laughs) the, a more kind of colloquial term is, uh, an HSP highly sensitive person is someone who has this trait of SPS and it just means, and it's something like the 15% of the population of the yeah. contain this trait. And it's not everything that, um, that kind of encompassed that I encompassed, uh, that made me feel like I was different, but it was a huge thing where, but wait, what is that? It so just... it's, it's both a physiological and kind of emotional sensitivity just to the world. Oh, I wow. mean, whether it be to physical, to light, to sound, to touch, like, um, there are certain things, uh, you know, so generally, um, the female human being has a more sensitive nose, for example, than a male human being. That's, yes. That's, it's well a fact. Known. Yes. I don't, um, it's, it's a wonder why it took them so long to have us as blenders and master distillers right, given right. that all of our senses are better in that regard. And and mine is while I am not a female human being, I have a trait, you know, called SPS that, that is a physiological difference. And it, it just, I am more sensitive to these things. And so it was things like sometimes love music, always have been a musician. You can see my drum set yeah, right there. Yeah, like yeah. that's a loud, annoying and your thing guitar. For, and you're not good at it. If you're not good at it, it ruins people's <laughs> lives. But Uh, but things like if I'm not fully prepared to be like in a live music scenario and it's too loud, it is entirely overwhelming and Mm. I just have to get out of there. Oh, wow. Things like that. And living just in a world that is full of sensory. Oh, Times Square must drive you nuts. Oh, it's, I mean, there's a time and a place and it's like, I'm ready for it. Okay, bring it on. But it's like, it is draining. It's exhausting. Yes, me too, yeah. And simply learning about it and understanding that like, oh, this is a thing that I can, yes, it's a label I can put on myself, but it is an an understanding of myself in a way that I just didn't have before. Yes. And it gave me so much more confidence because it is a, it's like, it is, it is a deeper understanding of self. And then learning that there are in fact other people that way. Yeah. And it's, and it's not a negative thing because once you right. have an understanding of what it is and why you react a certain way, then you're able to build on the strengths mm-hmm. that are there. But then you're also igno- you're able to acknowledge the areas of growth that are needed or improvement that are innate to whatever that is. Yeah. So there's certain aspects of 
my personality that it is, it's not all, it's not all positive. And, but being able to identify, okay, these are the traits that really need to be worked on. Well, I'm able to narrow down what I need to be working on instead of spending my life guessing who I am. Right. Or just, or just fretting over the fact that it's like, Oh God, why? I love music, but why can't I go to concerts? People like I'm so lame. Right, like, right, no, right, just right. Know, this is, know your this limits. Is it. Know your, yeah, yeah. And, and that's only one small example of things, but just but yeah, the, yeah. I mean the the term HSP. Uh, I mean, I honestly dorky of me to say, but I'm like I see that as hidden superpowers. How I look at it, I do too. Taking the confidence from that, knowing myself better is. Yeah. Completely changed the way that I can see myself. Yeah. You know? And uh, yeah, it's kind of amazing. Well, you get to see yourself through your own lens because you've taken the time to do the work. Yeah. Most yeah, yeah, people yeah. see themselves through other people's lenses. Yeah. Through the lens of the circumstances they're around, the lens of other people and who they are and and are concerned about how another person responds to them. And I tell people all the time, cause they'll ask me to come speak. And I'm like, listen, do not, if you don't want it straight up, literally unfiltered, no chaser, do not, I'm not the one for that because mm-hmm. I'm not going to sugarcoat, not a single word. So you'll have to be careful with your questions. Cause I'm not going to be careful with my answers. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and, yeah. And, and, but that is, but that's who I am. Yeah. And, and I've fully embraced that as a, as a superpower. I also know that means that I can be sharp tongue and I can hurt people's feelings because I am like, cause I can be so sharp. So that's the area that I've had to spend a lot of time working on. I literally, I mean, this, it'll sound silly, but I literally have a stack of kids books on kindness Mm-hmm. <laughs> no, seriously, yeah. because there are certain things that come innate to other people that like going in and, and just kind of bulldozing is not something that comes to innate to a lot of people. They're very timid. And, mm-hmm. uh, but the, the downside, like that's a huge upside for me. Like I feel like I can take on anything. I don't think about what all of the challenges I might run up against and all of the boundaries I might have to push or glass, you know, ceiling I have to break or I don't think about any of those things. I'm like, if it is something that anybody can do, I can do it. Yeah. The flip side of that is, is did I take the time to pause and say, hello, how are you doing today? Mm -hmm. Probably not. So that's the piece I have to work on. Yeah. I don't have to work on conquering the moon. Yeah. But I do have to work on pausing and saying, hi, how are you? Yeah. It's uh, yeah. You and I are like kind of the exact opposite, (laughs) but it's so I I love it because it's yeah, it is just knowing. And that is where the confidence comes from is actually knowing yourself because there is not I mean, I am I spent my whole life being like jealous and at, at, at worst resentful of people who maybe had this trait like you. And yeah. I'm like, why can't I do that? These yeah. are the people who succeed and are big and public and blah, blah, yeah. all this stuff. And I'm like, I don't want to be that. Yeah. But you, you know? know what? The funny thing is, is that people that are like me though, because of the way that we bulldoze, we can be absolute assholes. Mm-hmm. So if you're not working on like, it is not an active work that you're doing to make sure that you do pause and check on people and how they're doing. And instead of just being, cause we can be so tunnel visioned on whatever the goal is. And so reaching the goal is never going to be a problem for a person like me, but stopping along the way to make sure that everybody else is okay is not innate. Yeah. 
that's the part I had to teach myself. I, Charlie and I have this relationship where we're, you know, very close. We're 16 months apart. We're brothers. Everybody knows this. Um, and our personalities are very different in the, this is where my kind of philosophy study comes in is, uh, the, I don't know if it's just an archetypal kind of, uh, kind of relationship, but the notion that he and I work together very well because he is more of that. I wouldn't call him a hard charging person, but he's more the confident outgoing kind of person. And I'm, I'm the inverse and it's the, the relationship of the, what do they call it? The warrior King and the priestly advisor. Oh, just like this ancient kind of not, not duality of, you know, thing. it's the yin and the yang. It's, yeah. you know, it yeah. takes one to have the other kind of a thing. Yeah. And, and each strength is the other's weakness and vice versa. So yeah. uh, that's my hubby and me, Yeah, which has been great because he's like the kindest, most gentle. He's six foot four. So people, my little sister will call him the gentle giant. Yeah. Right. He's such a kind, humble, beautiful, beautiful soul. And so, so much of what I've learned in terms of that piece of it, the, the kindness piece of it. Most people don't think, oh, you have to take the time to learn kindness. No, if you are a person who all you see is the goal and going after the goal and tackling the goal, no, you have to learn. You actually have to learn that piece of it Mm -hmm. where someone like my husband, it just is so innate to who he is. But then what he had to learn was the confidence part of just going after something and not being concerned about how someone might view him going after a particular goal. I got to teach him that. Yeah. And so we've been able to teach each other things that are, are our innate strengths, or I should say, I don't even know that this is an innate strength of mine, but what I do know is once I made the determination at 20, it became what feels like an innate strength. Yeah. So I don't know if it was always there or if it came and it's just been honed since then. But from the time I was 20 until now, you couldn't tell me I couldn't do anything. Like there's not a single thing that anybody could tell me you can't do that. So when you were, sorry, you said you're very, very open about this. And so I appreciate that. I'm open about everything. So yeah. So going back to, as a kid, you said when you were, how old when you attempted suicide? I want to say I was 19. Maybe I've never actually gone back and tracked the year, but I'm going to say I was 19 or I would have just turned 20. I left home when I was 15 and I was in homeless shelters till I was 18. So I had a pretty- Why did you leave home at 15? Religious household. And I was a, again, going back to my personality type, the idea, this is why that book was so helpful for me. This idea that you, an authoritarian parent, doesn't work with INTJ. Uh I have to be able to add, that's the Myers-Briggs thing. Yeah. I have to be able to ask you why. Yep. And your answer can't be BS because I'm going to know it is. And so authoritarian parenting is in African-American households. We're getting better at it now. Um, But up until I'd say probably the last decade, every parenting style almost across the board for African-American as authoritarian, but if you think about it, we came in here as enslaved people. Mm-hmm. We, it's all we knew for leadership. Well, I, that's interesting. Yeah. Uh, this <laughs> talking about kind of, uh, therapy speak, but the idea that hurt people hurt people and right. generationally when you, when that kind of flows through to, you know, 10 years ago, this generation did not experience 
enslavement. No. But generationally, it's like, if that's what you learn, it's like, what a... Think about the fact that we came here and uh, 12 million slaves left the shores of Africa, right? Only 388,000 made it to America. So all of the African-Americans that you see here... That's in. That's 388,000 made it here because we were the furthest distance. Two million died in the middle passages. The majority of them got, went, were in Brazil and mm-hmm. in the Caribbean. Only 388,000 made it to our shores. Louis Gates actually is the one who did the, the mm-hmm. research to pin it to a number. So you've got 388,000 that were all speaking a language that wasn't English. Yeah. So they weren't stupid in their country. Yeah. They were stupid once they got here because they could not read or write. And a part of enslavement was not allowing those who are enslaved to learn how to read or write. Mm -hmm. So fast forward, what they know is they don't know how to read and write. They're having children. And the only thing they know in terms of how you lead is authoritarianism. Yeah. Because that is what every person who is leading them has ever shown. So that's what they learn. That's what they pass down. And then you're, you are looking at generations. This is not that long ago. When you think about it, we're in, it's amazing. It is not that long ago. You're talking about 150 years ago at best where we start learning English. Mm -hmm. Well, the English language is not an easy language to learn. It's easily the most difficult. Even when you just think about something as simple as carpool, there's no water yeah, in yeah, that yeah. pool, right? We, we come up with these different phrases and these different words that don't go back to a Latin root. Every other language mm-hmm. goes back to a Latin root. They make sense. Yeah. Then you come to English and it's like, who the hell made this up? <laughs> yeah. Like there's a, there's this, this really funny uh, thing that I saw the other day going around Instagram and it shows, it's like a person flipping these letters. Have you seen this? No. And they're flipping these letters. So you start off with one word and it flips the letter, like the first letter or the last letter or the middle letter. And it's just four words and it's like shows tomb T O M B. And then it flips it and goes, puts a C and goes comb. Oh no, that's comb. And then it flips another letter and, and you see how in the English language, we switch so many sounds of the same letters. Nobody else does that. Right. Yeah. Exactly. And we could do this all day. Yeah. (laughs) And so because of that, so the English, if you did, if it's not your first language, it's already incredibly difficult. Then your parents didn't speak it. Your grandparents didn't speak it. Now you're learning it from scratch. And, and so we're, we are, we want to feel as though the effects of slavery are so far removed, but those are the little things that keep showing up. Mm-hmm. The authoritarianism yeah, yeah. in parenting, the beating your kids, we call it spanking or whipping or whatever, but we learned that when we got here. Yeah. It's not how we parented in Africa. Mm-hmm. We learned that here. So when it comes to you, you have this authoritarian household it's your parents religious doesn't work for me 15 I'm you out. just peace out you just say yeah. i'm leaving here yeah what what i moved you to go? the projects because they didn't have any rules so there were some kids that i went to school with that lived in the projects in watts and in jordan downs to be exact they didn't have rules parents didn't care what they did i was like sounds like a great place for me mm-hmm. uh, but as you can imagine that it, it's not a great place and 
And, and so I lived there for a little while before I realized, oh, I don't, I don't belong here. And it's, and I, ironically, I didn't realize I didn't belong there until I was at a concert. It was a concert at, in Jordan Downs. And it, it was like a, just a hip hop concert. And there's a guy that's on the stage and he's playing host and rapping and all the rest of that stuff. And, and at one point in the concert, I'm just dancing, enjoying the music with everybody else. And he says, stop, stop the music, stop the music. The DJ cuts the music and he looks me dead in the eye and he points at me and he says, we have a half breed in the house. Colorism is a real thing among the black community Mm. because you had house niggas filled niggas Mm -hmm. and they pitted us against one another. Mm -hmm. And so in a crowd of all dark skinned people with brown eyes, I stood out with green eyes Mm -hmm. and he made sure the whole crowd knew. And so it was the, it was the first time in that environment. I was like, oh, okay. I'm not welcome here. Yeah. Up until that point, I had no idea. Right. I was perfectly fine there. And, but after that I left and you know, I'm a kid on my own. And so I was in homeless shelters. Best experience of my life though. I would not change it for anything. The fortitude that I have here, I can go straight back to that. Sure. I bet. And so then where from there, I mean, you were 15 that experience at that concert, how old were you from then at that point? I'm 15. 15. Yeah. So I was pretty, and then yeah. how'd you find yourself? I mean, you've just been in LA since then until mm-hmm. recently, right? Yeah. I was in LA until, uh, 2000 and well, I came here for the first time researching this story in 2016 and I basically never left. So I went to Lynchburg and things unfolded in such a way where Nearest's descendants and Jack's descendants immediately began to help me. And by immediate, I mean, I wasn't even there for two hours and people found out I was doing and, and began to help. And I essentially would go home, get clothes, come back because the thing about a small town, they're not going to share information with outsiders. Right. And the first people to meet me came to the conclusion that I had the right heart and decided to help. But if I kept going back and forth to LA, there was no way that people were going to open up. So I essentially didn't go back except to get clothes. And I stayed. And every single day I would interview. At the time, I was invested in a number of different businesses in which I wasn't running. Mm-hmm. And so it was easy for me to be able to do, I've always worked from my, from home, my whole life. I've had an old home office. I'm an introvert by nature. People don't think it cause I do events all the time and I'm all the rest. But after those events, I love being around the people. But by the time I get in the car, I am passed out Yeah, every time. That's, I found that so interesting. The, uh, kind of blew my mind The really the fundamental difference between an introvert and an extrovert is not necessarily how good someone is in front of a crowd. No. It's, it's whether that experience is draining for that person exactly. or energizing for that it, person. Yes. And the way I, the way that I say it is slightly different, but it means the same, which is it's how you renew. Yeah. Yeah. If you, if you have to be around people for energy, if that's where you gain energy from, you're an extrovert. Yeah. If you need to be by yourself in order to renew to, to really refuel, to regain energy, you're an introvert. Yeah. And I have known my whole life I'm an introvert. I'm really good at being 
out in public and, and talking to people. And I love people. I usually on most Saturdays, I'm at the distillery and I will sign bottles and take pictures and greet people for hours. Then I will get in the car and it's a good thing. I'm only 15 minutes from home because five minutes into that thing, I'm falling asleep. (laughs) And so that's, that is how, you know, I am, I am an introvert and it's, it is, I hate to use the word draining because it will feel like it's a negative experience for some people. And it's not, it's a very positive experience, but it does utilize all my fuel Yeah, and I have to go refuel. Yeah, yeah, And I can only refuel by myself. And then also with my husband, he's for me, it's the same as being by myself is he refuels me the same way as if I were completely by myself. Mm-hmm. So how did you get into authorship? Y- you know, what's interesting is that I love being married. And at that point, I think I'd been married for about 10 years and Everything on TV at that point that you would hear about marriage, all the books, being, they were all really negative, like ball and chain. And, and it was the number one show on TV at the time I began writing the book was Desperate Housewives. Yeah. And all the real housewives were popping up everywhere. Yeah. There was already Orange County and there were, there were several more that had popped up. And it just literally it came to me one day that my life and my experience was completely different than what everyone else out there was talking about. And I said, I can't be the only one. And so I decided I'm not the only one and I'm going to create a club. Keith laughs at it now, but, uh, or he did then he doesn't as much now because it became such a big thing. But I said, I'm going to start a club for women like me who love being married, who have incredible spouses. And I'm going to call it the happy wives club. And I'm going to get a million people to join me from around the world. Now, mind you, this was pre Facebook. So to have a million people join, it was people emailing other people <laughs> yeah. Yeah, yeah. and saying, join this club. But I, I literally created a page on, on, on Squarespace. And I said, this is what I'm doing. Join my club. And I had thousands of people joining from 20 something different countries in a matter of four weeks, just by women emailing each other and going, join this club. Like we're not represented in the press. Women aren't stupid. Our husband, we're not caricatures. Our husbands aren't cheating, you know, buttholes. Let's show that side of it as well. And so then the press picked up on it. Well, I shouldn't say the press picked up on it. I have a PR background. And so I sent it out to the press and then they came and did stories and it just kind of grew from there. Yeah. And so then that turned into a book. It did. And then it did. I traveled to 12 countries and six continents. And I interviewed couples happily married for 25 years or more. And the the key to that was they couldn't be the ones who said they were happily married. It was people in their community that I'd say, point me to the couple that everybody wants to be like, including their kids. Mm -hmm. Cause a lot of time these couples to the outside world, it will look great. If you've ever seen Dateline, you know yeah, what's yeah, up with right. that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> but their kids will tell you the truth. Like, no, it wasn't great growing up in that household, right. right? So if the kids want a marriage like their parents' marriage, that's a good place to start. Sure. And so that's where I, that's where I began. And I would let one lead me to the other, lead me to the other. And I began interviewing. And I was looking for one common denominator. That was my whole thing. If I go and interview people from different backgrounds, races, religions, if I can find one common denominator, that is the key to a happy marriage. That's a big deal. But there was 12. Yeah. Blew my mind. Um, 
What? <laughs> well, whatever. We. I don't need to. We're running out of time here, so I don't want to have you name all twelve and then we get into that. Um, but I. I could tell you the number one. What is that? Mutual respect. So there's always been this Seems idea that. obvious, right? No, because there's this idea that men want respect and women want love. But the reality is, is men want respect and love. And so do women. Yeah. It swings both ways. So for all of the women, every single one that I met, they were confident who they were. They knew exactly who they were really strong. It's not like I was seeking out strong women. They were all very, very strong women, professional, even the ones who stayed at home, took it very seriously, their role. They were all incredibly strong. But when their spouses walked through the room, they doted. Like, it's not like they were trying. That was like they turned into mush. I am the strongest person in the world. But if Keith were standing next to you, I'd be giggling like a little kid. I am absolute mush around my husband. And that's something that people don't really understand is, is strong people need a place where they feel safe too. Because mm-hmm. out in, in the world, they're strong every day for everyone. And so they need a place where they can just collapse and be a kid and be completely vulnerable. And so that was the thing that was, so it's like you have these really strong women doted over their spouses, and then you have these really strong spouses doted over their wives. Mm-hmm. And it was amazing to watch. The most interesting one is they all had a daily ritual. Yeah. Country to country, different backgrounds. They all had something that they did together every single day. And it was something Keith and I didn't do. So I literally called him from Australia and said, we need a daily ritual. Yeah. 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 My, uh, my friend's dad wrote a book or sorry, he did. He has written books before he's a psychologist uh, and he's, he's actually currently working on some sort of project. But the point is he's interviewing a whole bunch of centenarians, uh, around the world and doing a similar kind of thing, like figuring out what is I mean, an age old kind of quest here is what is the key to long yeah. life, you know? Yeah. But he said the one thing that he's found with everybody, regardless of culture, geography, et cetera, is, is a, is a ritual, is a, yeah. I don't remember if you call it a ritual or a, um, uh, like tradition or I think it was just a ritual, like a yeah. daily, yeah. uh, Oh, this is driving me nuts. The word, a simple word. Someone's listening, being like, it's this word, you idiot. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? And that, yeah. I was just like, yeah, that's what it's. But it's something it's, you're looking forward to every day. It's, yeah. And like uh, seeing the, you know, the birthdays of, you know, Elma Foster, who's uh, turned 105 today. Yeah. So she takes a shot of whiskey and smokes a cigar every, every day. day. It's like, yeah, that's it. That's they her They all ritual. have something. It's something that is every single day. And I don't know why it works, but the, literally the moment I said, babe, we got to, we got to add a daily ritual and we've, we've had it ever since. And it, it's changed. Originally it was, we were working out every day at 5.30 AM and, oh, we, de- and we decided too much. We decided instead <laughs> we'd have a coffee hour. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so yeah, yeah, it, it, it changes, but you know, it's like this one Israeli couple for 40 years, they had been having this they, they called it their own happy hour. They'd have port for the hour leading up to dinner. The kids were not allowed to come interrupt them. This mm-hmm. was their hour. And then they made, they made dinner and, and had dinner with the rest of the kids, but they had their own hour every day. This couple in, in Cape Town, South Africa, every morning 
the wife would wake up, open all the windows in their condo, and it was like windows all around the bedroom. Husband goes downstairs, gets the coffee, brings it up. They'd have it, and they called it their board meeting because they'd be up against the backboard of their bed. Mm-hmm. Like everybody had something different that they did daily, but it was always daily. Yeah, yeah, yeah. How do you and Keith meet? His mom. She introduced us. She was determined. She met me and she called him and she said, I have met your wife. And no only child wants to hear (laughs) that his mother has met his wife. So he was not interested in hearing it. I was not interested in meeting a woman's only child. Yeah. Who's a son who was just like a little lower than the angels, crowned with glory and honor. I was not interested. Yeah. And, but she wore us both down until we met and then that was it we we met in in may book about that it. yeah 10 years later yeah yeah that's kind of amazing um oh going back one thing i meant to ask about the myers-briggs things yeah uh are you do you know the enneagram thing no you know what it's funny because people do enneagram i don't find it to be as accurate yeah. so i've taken the enneagram now twice and it gets several things for me off where with the Myers-Briggs, every single thing was spot on, yeah. like down to the fact that my particular personality type, if you drop me into a community that speaks another language, I pick up their accent immediately. Mm-hmm. I would love to not. The hardest thing has been living here in Tennessee and not picking up a Southern draw. Do you know how hard I've had to work? I, I, uh, am the same. When I moved when we were six, I mean, our whole family moved, but I, my mom would tease my dad about the Southern accent because yeah. he grew up here and all, and she didn't. And so when I was six years old, hearing mom tease dad about that, yeah. I had this thing in my head that I was never going to pick up that accent. And I mean, some people, depending on maybe where they're from, either say I have none whatsoever or some maybe a little bit, but yeah. I can feel it in myself. Like there's a little bit of it. Yeah. Well, but I, I, yeah. I, I work really hard at it. I love a Southern draw. Love, love, love. But what I have found is when people move from California into the South, it never sounds natural. It sounds <laughs> absurd. So I, I had determined to not pick up a Southern draw because I don't want to sound ridiculous and inauthentic, but if you drop me into Mexico, I will say a single sentence and whoever I'm talking to will start speaking to me like I'm native because I get the accent immediately. And then I'm like, no, 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 no. I knew four words, four words. That's all you got for me. And that's everywhere I go. If you put me in France, it's the exact same thing. They think I'm a native when I say like the one sentence I've learned. Yeah. And, but that's kind of the the personality type, which that, I mean, to be able to pinpoint it down to that, yeah. it's pretty, it's, to me, it's pretty astounding. Yeah. It's funny. Cause I, I was so into the Myers-Briggs thing and, uh, and then it, at some point it seemed like, oh, everybody's now got their kind of personality test du jour. And then, but I yeah. don't know, it's all, it's again, it's all just for me, an interesting way to like be able to understand myself. Absolutely. Better. Whatever, whichever one helps people to understand, I think is the right one for them. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so I have to ask you about this big, uh, purchase in cognac. Recently. <laughs> What's that yeah. all about? I'm excited that one of the things I learned coming into this industry that I did not know before is that there's never been a non-white male to succeed. Never knew that. And when I say that, I mean, succeed at a level where the, you know, 
uh, being out of stock doesn't threaten to, to kill your business. Like mm-hmm. meaning at a level that is your your Brown Foreman's, your Diageo's, your Pernod's, your Bacardi's, your Sazerac's, that, that there's never been one. And then people initially, when I would say that, they'd go, well, what about Bacardi? It's like, he grew up in Spain and lived in Cuba. Hate to tell you this, but both identify as white male. That mm. <laughs> is like neither one of those groups identify as Latino. And, but so you, you have, and I didn't understand it until I started doing signing bottle signings and going out and speaking. And I'd have women and people of color come up to me and start crying. And it didn't make any sense to me whatsoever. I'm like, why are you crying? This is whiskey we're talking about. I mean, I know it's a beautiful story, but the story is done. We're just standing here. Why are you still crying? Mm -hmm. And I realized that my boldness was, was giving them hope that whatever industry they were in, whatever they were doing, that they could actually succeed. Even if they, prior to meeting me, thought there was a glass ceiling or thought that there were things that were keeping them as a person of color or as a woman from being able to do it, that that didn't exist because they were watching me do it in an industry in which a person like me had never existed. And the longer I began, the more I began having these conversations, the more I realized I am in the best position of any person who has ever come into this industry of color that is a woman to build a spirit conglomerate. Mm-hmm. But you can't build a spirit conglomerate with one brand. Right. It can't be, you just can't. That doesn't exist. Well, I mean, Tito's, but his flavor, flavored vodka, flavored vodka, which yeah. is his story in itself. I love his story. It's extraordinary. But when you think about it, you have to have multiple companies and brands in order for that to really exist. And for me, the most natural thing was cognac because 97% of cognac leaves France. France doesn't drink it. It just, it's almost an entire export product. But then 52% of that comes to America. We are by far the number one place that cognac goes. You come into America 54% is drunk by black people, Mm -hmm. 19% Latino, 10% Asian. You have 80, more than 80%, three groups of people, all people of color. Yeah. And there's never been a cognac brand of any level or stature whatsoever created by a woman or a person of color. So it just made sense. Yeah. Interesting. I, I, I kind of figure, I mean, I just read about this you know, last week or whatever. And, uh, it, it seemed to make sense to me, but I was curious cause it's like it, it I'm not in your business mm-hmm. meetings. I don't, you know, mm-hmm. I don't know what's going on in your, in your head or in your business yeah. or anything like that. And so I was curious if, you know, it, it, that in theory seemed to make sense to me. So yeah. yeah and it's, cool. it's, it's one of those things where it's the same way that everything, I mean, once the brand comes out and the, and the movie comes out in relation to it, then you'll look at it and go, Oh, that's the exact same thing that happened to her with uncle nearest. It's identical. Yeah. It's identical. Every bit about it, the research, how that story came about walking in and saying, okay, I want, I want to make sure we have province here. If we're going to do this, we need to have provenance here. And, and, looking for a place and the, the realtor that I hired, there's a property that was not for sale that had been on and off the market for 
a decade maybe, and it's owned by the Martell family. It's their family estate. And the person, the the last of the descendants to buy it and, and take it over. And this is the home that the distillery is like, literally I can get into their old distillery, which is an operating distillery through my door. I supply the hot water to the distillery. <laughs> so that's how intertwined the properties are. And I like you literally have ne- you've never really Wait, seen anything that like to it. Me. What do you what do you mean like, by that? No, li- not kidding you. Because, You're talking about because the Martell family, in Cognac, in because the, yes, because yeah. the Martell family, because they had on the property their home and then they built an adjoining distillery. Mm-hmm. So then that distillery oh, oh, but, is fully connected. Gotcha. But then they sold the distillery two years ago. But the house and the distillery, the property are still connected. Yeah. So the owner of the distillery can walk straight onto my grounds. Okay. Because the house is now yours. We bought the, we bought the Martell estate. Yeah. Yeah. So that hundred acres, the 50 acres of, of champagne grapes in Cognac city, in the city of Cognac, we, so now, no, now we're the largest owner of, of Grand Champagne grapes in the city of Cognac. Gotcha. Nice. That's pretty cool. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Super cool. Um, okay. Do you have a stillness routine? Yeah. So I observe the Sabbath every Sunday and I don't do anything. Keith says I'm like an Orthodox Jew. I mm-hmm. refuse to do it. He says the only thing you do is like, you'll turn on faucets. See, so he's like, but you won't do jack <laughs> I literally eat, smoke cigars, drink, whatever it is I'm sipping on. Yesterday it was champagne. Uh, most of the time it's uncle nearest, but mm-hmm. it, every Sunday it is really good food, either cocktails or drinking something neat, smoking a Cuban. And that is my Sunday. So that is my stillness day. And then I sleep really, really well, eight hours a night. And my routine for that is 45 minutes before bed. My phone completely shuts off. It gives me a little beep, beep, beep that lets me know it's time to get ready for bed. And I turn off all technology. I don't watch, I don't really watch TV anyway, as a general rule, not very much except sports. And, but I turn it all off and my process of not watching any technology for four, any, anything, 45 minutes before I go to bed. So that creates a complete stillness when I sleep. Yeah. What's the best hangover cure? I don't get hangovers. I don't like the tape. I do not like feeling tipsy or drunk. So I just don't, I just, I just don't like it. So I don't know. I, I just, I've been, I have been hung over twice in my life and I don't understand why people do it. I don't either. It's awful. And as I get older, obviously the worse it gets, but the way, yeah, I put it in a, I think it was the last person I was talking to about this. I kind of think it's the best offense is a good defense. I just like, just don't drink too much. Oh, it's, <laughs> it's like, awful. I just, I was just speaking up at, at discus in, in where were they? Vail, Colorado. Now, if you're in Colorado, even in, if you are in Vail or in Aspen, oh, just the elevation, the elevation, if you have a sip of champagne, you'll feel like you had the bottle Yeah, and my yeah. God don't have <laughs> any type of, of bourbon. It's cocktail. crazy. Yeah. Like a sip will lay you out and then you'll be in the middle of the night feeling like you're drunk. And so I arrived there and I, one, I saw one of my team members and they were coming out of an event and she was perfectly fine. And I said, did you have anything to drink? And she says, I had a little bit, I was like, 
so much water. Like the yeah. most amount of water you think you will ever need in your life, have that tonight. Otherwise you're going to wake up like you were, like you're drunk and it will only be because a few ounces. The one place, the two places I don't really want to see Uncle Nearest is Aspen and Vale because I don't want people getting what they think are hangovers from my bourbon and it's the elevation. Yeah. 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 I mean, in Denver, first time I went there to work, it was, it was amazing because every single bartender would just, you go in for a sales call and they just give you water without even knowing what you're there for anything. I'm like, Absolutely. okay, I really appreciate this. But then also I would still wake up, you know, slightly hungover and I'm like pretty responsible. I'm not yep. going crazy, but I'd have three or four bottles of water by my bed and run through them throughout the course of the night and yep. still be like, I am like, you know, I literally go and buy out. those cans of oxygen. Like that's, it's yeah. so absurd. The amount of water and oxygen that you need up there. And so I don't want, I don't want any parts of alcohol when I am in those high elevation places. But as a, as a general rule, I just don't like, it's the reason why I mostly drink neat because it takes a lot for me to get tipsy drinking bourbon neat a lot. Yeah. So that's, that's why I mostly stick to that. Yeah. Well, thanks for coming over. Thank you for having me. It's been it's pretty fun. cool. Thank you. And thanks for this delicious, this is a delicious rye. Hey, thank the, that's really good. Thank the fine people at barrel. Mm-hmm. All right. Well, we're about done here. So cheers to end the cheers night. Cheers with empty glasses. Yeah. <laughs> cheers. it for my talk with Fawn Weaver. I hope you enjoyed it. If you would like to know more about what Fawn has going on, you can go to unclenearest.com or if you'd like to check out the books that she's written, check out happywivesclub.com. Until next time, I'll leave you with a quote from one of the early Hollywood megastar actors, Ava Gardner. I wish to live to 150 years old, but the day I die, I wish it to be with a cigarette in one hand and a glass of whiskey in the other. Cheers, everyone. The opinions expressed in this recording do not necessarily reflect the views of Nelson's Greenbrier Distillery or Constellation Brands, Inc.